you know, it was almost impossible not to believe in God of some sort. You could maybe be a Christian heretic or something, but it'd be really hard not to believe in God at all, say in the year 1580 in Europe. Uh, then in the year 2080, by the year 2000 or a bit after, um, it's actually pretty normal, even if you're a believer who's an Orthodox believer, who really thinks the things and lives your life by them, to faintly understand in your lizard brain why somebody feels a wobble uh, toward that, that, that naturalist, atheist, materialist direction. We need to kind of understand the material conditions within which we're forming beliefs in the first place to kind of fully grasp what it is that makes God eradicable from the cosmic picture in the first place. Hello and welcome to What Would Jesus Tech? My name is Andrew Noble. I'm joined by Joel Jacob, my co-host, as well as Dr. Joseph Minnick, um, who I'll introduce uh, shortly. Uh, here on this podcast, we want to help you use tech, find, rest, and glorify God. Uh, we're a podcast to help people who are working in tech or people who are just interested in technology and trying to make sense of our technological world as Christians. How do they intersect? How do they overlap? And maybe we need philosophy. Maybe we need scripture. Maybe we need to make sense of our secular world um, and, and this sense that God is absent. Um, and so to help us to talk about that today, um, my professor right now, I'm taking a course with the Davenant Institute. Um, Joseph Minnick, he got his PhD from the University of Dallas, uh, University of Texas at Dallas. Um, he is a teaching fellow with the Davenant Institute, uh, founding editor of Ad Fontes, um, as well as the author of two books. One is a more shorter, easy to read, 100 page, Enduring Divine Absence, um, which is a whole interesting topic. We feel like God is absent. How do we endure that? How do, how do we as Christians live in light of that? And then his, his other book is a much more scholarly dense book. It's, a, it, it, it hurts my brain sometimes, but then I find it picking up my brain as I think about it later in the day. It's called Bulwarks of Unbelief. Um, and, uh, and that's right behind me right here. Uh, the foreword was written by Carl Truman. Thank you, uh, Joe, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. So let's jump into this question of philosophy. Uh, Joel and I are interested in it, and we don't know why. We're trying to make sense of it. What is philosophy, and why is it important for Christians? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think a lot of the answer to that is going to depend on exactly what we mean by philosophy, of course. So what is philosophy? Um, in, in one sense, my own answer to that is probably drawing from a traditional sense of what philosophy is, as opposed to maybe a more modern sense of what philosophy is. So in the modern period, it's it's very easy for philosophy to become, just as you see in all these disciplines in the academy, a kind of fragmentation, a kind of every, all these activities are going in boxes. There's less interdisciplinarity in the last 150 years in, in general. That's the tendency of the academy and especially of the humanities. And, and in that context, philosophy really can take on this kind of, um, kind of, kind of, uh, cast of professionals who do like rigorous logic chopping or something like that. Um, and sure, that's useful somewhere. That's useful in a lot of places, but it's, it's hard for me to say, is that generally useful for the average Christian? Are we all supposed to go become like as absolute rigorous kind of abstract log logic choppers as we can? That sort of right. thing. Um, uh, 
again, that skill is probably in some circuitous way integrated into the church. But in the in the in the traditional sense of philosophy, I think the idea really is more that we're just trying to grasp some sense of the whole of things. Uh, the whole cosmic show, the, the most basic way that we can grasp onto reality, to know it, to say it, and to have that held in the mind, to be able to articulate that, have that held in the mind. Um, um, and then, and this is, this is the other side of, I think, a more classical philosophical approach, that sense of the unity of things held in the mind, and then um, a program of living, a life. So what, it, what is philosophy but an activity? It's a whole personed activity. A program of life that's ordered around that unity such that my whole self is, is made relative to the whole of, of, the, of the world. And in that sense, um, it was very natural to say, you know, what's what's the relevance of Christianity to philosophy? In one sense, and it's it's not surprising given the definition I, I just gave, that in the in the earliest Christian communities, um, it was very very common uh, to think of Jesus as a philosopher and to think of the Christian community as a kind of group of philosophers because they're kind they're in their own way doing that. They have some sense of the whole of things, not this piecemeal sense of the of, of the world. Um, and there's this this rigorous attunement, this rigorous attunement of a whole lived life to some to kind of some singularity, you might say. And the grammar of philosophy and the and the discipline of philosophy are sort of sort of taking that practice. You can see it exemplified there, and then and then yeah, it sort of moves on after that, and the, and the schools of philosophy and such develop. So in our context, I think the. Um, What's the relevance of that for us? In one sense, we're we're drawing from a grammar that has been seen as useful for 2,000 years to talk about the world, to understand ourselves, to understand life, to understand reality, and in fact, even to understand things like politics and morality and te technology, even like what is the difference between a piece of technology and a piece of uh, and a non-technological thing, for instance. Those sorts of things are very um wrapped up in the in this in this tradition and uh, i think the recovery of that grammar um and the recovery of that posture is enormously relevant for christians though though again kind of at grade graded levels um uh, that does not mean every christian needs to become a formal philosopher and and again some of this is what's useful it's useful that the church you might say has a team of people who have that style of thinking and living which is different than saying every single person at the church needs to do that particular thing. So in one sense, philosophy is a uh, comes as some uh, a thing that some people are more gifted at than others, you might say. And then that group of people bring that whole gift to the church. But it's something that everybody participates in indirectly and nascently in their own way, which is to say we're all we're all grasping in the dark, as Paul might say, you know, groping, as it were. Uh, struggling with God, to use that other that other Old Testament metaphor, um, uh, to have some sense of the whole of things. That's a, in one sense that is just a very human task to have that sense of what is it that holds it all together, and how is my life related to that, and how is all, how are all things related to that? And so that's a very general answer, but I'm sure there's more specific ways to say what what how does philosophy, especially as exercise, really hit the ground in the church? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I saw, well, you you recommended the book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. Um, and that book was helpful to me to kind of open up the difference of ancient and modern, as you've just unpacked, and kind of the idea that even Jesus, when we see him as wearing a robe, you know, in that stereotypical image of Jesus, ancient, we 
that's that's a philosopher's robe. He he was portrayed by the early church as a king and a philosopher, and that's kind of the early church. If you want to be like the early church, they understood Jesus in that mode. Um, and so that's kind of opened up my eyes towards it. Even thinking of something like our podcast, ethics about Jesus. You know, ethics is a subset of philosophy, right? So so I'm like, oh man, this is really important. This is this is valuable uh, to think through. And so I'm kind of on this journey. What's your journey been like? Um, kind of going getting into this. You you described philosophy as a passion of yours. How does how did that start for you and to get to you? Obviously, maybe that's an hour long conversation. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> but 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 briefly, how would you describe your story into it? Yeah, I suppose um, um, in in the sense I just define philosophy as a maybe a style of of being, a style of living, a style of thinking, you know, uh, something like that. I suppose um, I've always had something like that style and philosophy wound up being the kind of discipline and the grammar as whatever I was studying, whether it was history or theology or that sort of thing. Philosophy just wound up being the place where I guess my native movements felt like they were the most natural, uh, something like that. Um, but uh, it was more concrete than that. I suppose a big part of it is I got into intellectual things to just try to understand the world in my mid-teens. You know, I was raised in like a, a kind of mid-90s homeschool evangelical community in America, very much the kind of uh, – it was the Dallas area, kind of very much during sort of the culture wars. And uh, I was – a reflective teenager and learned a lot from my community. None of that is to, to, to paint them with a bad brush or something like that. Learned a lot, but then also you, you have questions, you ask a lot of questions, you read a bunch of books. And pretty early on, I was trying to find, you know, the guys who like radically disagreed with my community and read, read the kind of steel man stuff, right. To really partially, cause I didn't want it to just be in a tribe. You know, the sense was, of course, I could find a bunch of books to defend the things that are already kind of default positions, but I don't, I, you know, I really want to know if this stuff is true or not, right? And so you steel man the critics, you do that sort of thing. And over time, that just became a kind of, uh, maybe you just got out of control. That just becomes an intellectual project because you keep doing that. And there's no end, as Solomon told us a long time ago, back when there weren't even that many books. There's just no end to that process. And so- right. But in the middle of that, you're not just trying to scratch intellectual itches, but you're trying to have some bearing on your own life itself. What do I think and how certain am I really even of the basics of the faith? Maybe it starts out thinking about Calvinism and Arminianism and you read some books on that. But but for me, it uh, for me, it very quickly became more principial. Like, how do I know these very basic things? How can I be sure of these very basic things? And for a long time, uh, you know, I would say there's 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 some years where it felt like groping in the dark not that i was ever disoriented ultimately because you have the holy spirit working with believers to hold them when they're <laughs> when they don't know which which way is up um but yeah so i i found various helps along the way things that how i i feel like put reality in front of me in a way that i could grasp and and and, and some things that helped me work through my own doubts a lot of it was working through doubts like i'm trying to relieve the doubt itch in a sense and the, mm-hmm. during divine absence that book you mentioned kind of grows out of some of that um i found that discovering i i suppose relevant to this i did find that that discovering the older philosophical grammar was very relieving to me um 
it, I, I think for the first part of my philosophical journey, there was a sense that there's just a million philosophers out there who are all kind of, um, uh, you might you might think of like um, philosophers as a bunch of modelers of reality or something like that. And they're all like, here's my model, here's my model, here's my model. And you're just comparing models at some point. And there's a million of them. And there's always that really weird guy who combines them in some other way, you know, that kind of thing. And that was an overwhelm. That's an overwhelming way to grab knowledge. Uh, discovering the classical grammar was helpful because it seemed to me that there were very, very basic ways it frames things, uh, especially relative to reality. Like, hey, we're in the real world here. <laughs> Actually, we don't have to get to the real world. We're starting in the real world and just taking it as real. Uh, it's almost uh, uh, start doing that and, and, and feeling the method, in a sense, of that more traditional grammar really, uh, I think, helped give me the sensation. And in, in, in this is an odd way to put this, but that I was in the real world after all. It's almost like a reverse matrix for us in the modern world. The real the real way to be Neo and wake up in the pod is to get out of your bed and be like, wow. I'm not in the matrix at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this world and this podcast that we're on right now, sitting at tables, really is where reality hits uh, uh, the tip of the spear. And, and what happens in the modern imagination, I think, and this is part of what philosophy, I think, helped with me, is that in the modern imagination, I think we don't realize the extent to which we frame our, our life itself, this right here, as an epiphenomenon of something real which is more basic. Well, this is, you know, whether it be, you know, a biological explanation or whether it be a Freudian explanation or whether it be whatever. But the idea is, is like this here is always really the epiphenomenon of the real thing that's going on. Uh, and, and I think getting into the more traditional philosophy really helped me. It was a weird sense of almost wake up. I'm in reality right now. Uh, and actually that's why we can do philosophy because we're starting. We actually are starting somewhere. Joel, I know you've been talking with others about retrieving or, or getting back to older. Do you want to? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't know if uh, you've heard about stoicism in Silicon Valley becoming a big thing. Oh, and yeah. Actually, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like 2016, 2017. I think it really hit like a peak. Um, there is a writer, Tim Ferriss. He's probably most famous for a book called uh, For... I think it's four hour work week, not four day, four hour work week. And a lot of startup uh, tech leaders, entrepreneurs, they like read that to have a better idea on business. And what ended up happening is because of how difficult it is to kind of build something new uh, and all the obstacles that you go to, people really started adopting that belief or, or the values of stoicism to kind of go through that, especially when a lot of them didn't have a faith to sit back on. Um, so it was kind of interesting when I was talking with, uh, you know, friends of mine who I went to university with and they're like, yeah, I just got this book, you know, the obstacle is the way and, and all of these sort of things. And even engaging with them in a sort of like, you might even call it religious uh, conversation. That's that, yeah, that was yeah, very fascinating time. And I think it still is there, even if it's not as popular as it was. That's really fascinating. Uh, it puts a little color on that on that development for me, because I'm 
you know, sociologically or just just um, community disconnected from Silicon Valley. It's not a world I know super well. Um, but as it were, through the publishing vibosphere, I have definitely gotten the sense in the last 10 years that stoicism and, and especially, yes, in the kind of self-help professional business yeah. uh, leadership world, there's a there's a cottage industry of publications on stoicism. It's kind of funny to see. I, I saw one philosopher uh, actually recently on Twitter uh, kind of maybe he was poo-pooing it a little bit. Like some philosophers were like, oh, you know, oh, that's what people take out of philosophy. Uh, oh, great. You, you know, kind of the, the thin whatever. Uh, uh, I find it fascinating partially because my own my own um, kind of way of thinking about philosophy has really uh, been shaped by this resurgence of this sense of philosophy as a way of life. So again, even what I was saying at the beginning, there's there's philosophy, the content that we do, but it was always considered a way of life relative to that. And one of the things, the resurgence of Stoicism, all these books on Stoicism is done, uh, one piece of the academy that is kind of picking up on it and saying, hey, in principle, this is actually, you know, something we can work with a little bit, uh, is in fact that it helps recovery an ancient sense of what the philosophical program is, which is namely that it's a way of life, because that that model of philosophy is just um, very thick in Stoicism itself. That's very clearly what Stoicism is trying to do. And what's attracting a lot of these guys to it is like that set of practices where, and I, and I would imagine that's exactly what it's like. If you're trying to accomplish, if you're trying to become the next Steve Jobs and you're really trying to like accomplish a truly, you know, you know, near miraculous feat of engineering or some beautiful feat of coding. Um, uh, yeah. The drive the, the 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 self calibration it might take to really achieve something like that is probably something most people don't fully understand, and I can imagine that literature providing uh, uh, yeah significant inspiration uh, for that kind of thing. So that that connection makes sense to me. Really, really fascinating, and uh, yeah, hopefully it's the surrogate for uh, even better things. Uh, yeah, I think even for myself. And, you know, build like I was talking to you before we started recording, you know, I'm building a technological product and there are highs when you're standing in a large auditorium and you're, you know, you, you're sharing what you just launched. And then there are lows where you're like, man, this one thing isn't working. What am I going to do? And I think even those um, practices, I could look at and be like, mm, there's kind of value here in not getting overwhelmed like one of the i think the famous ones i'm not sure if it's uh, marcus aurelius but it was like uh saying the obstacle is the way where a lot of times it's like there's an obstacle in your path and you're like okay i gotta go around it and people end up avoiding it and it might be their natural tendency and that is like one principle and value to be like no you have to go through it and i kind of like sat with that for a few weeks and i was like okay this is really cool it gives me a little bit more motivation to not let my emotions kind of uh, distract me and carry me away from the task at hand. And then later on, I was, uh, I don't know if I was reading the Bible, but it came to me, it was like, well, actually, Jesus is the way. And it's like, oh, how do I, how do I reconcile this? It's like, Jesus is the way through the obstacle. Like, is there still value? Do I throw one out? And I think like that is definitely like another layer on top of like tech people in Silicon Valley. It's like Christian engineers or technologists in Silicon Valley or, you know, working anywhere. Yep. 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 Yeah. And I don't think you would say, Joe, that we should only use the Bible and not use the world. You're, you're trying to help 
people in figuring out the way of life to use both books that God has written in the world and in in scripture. And so I don't think you would say to what, what would you say to Joel? Should he should he throw out that obstacle is the way? So that's that's fascinating. I think in a in a lot of cases what you find is that we're all we're all very disoriented, right? It's like we're born into this world and most of us and, and I mean that that's true just of humans in general since time out of mind. But when you're born into a context where there's not a lot of custom and tradition and like, like we don't, most of us like experience developing our philosophical and religious and ethical intuitions against the backdrop of a sea of options. And a bunch of our intuitions and thoughts have changed probably if we're over 30 or, you know, or something like that. And so you feel that, that sense of relativization and what it, what it, what it, what it, uh, amounts to, I think, in a lot of people's, you know, sense of life in, in, our, in our existential space, if you will, is that we um, we all feel a bit like we're hodgepodging it. We're trying to figure out how to, like, figure out how to move through the world and put things together. And so, like, yeah, at one level, at the lowest level, maybe that's chicken soup for the Christian soul or a billboard or something. But, but even as you get to more sophisticated orientations in the world uh, or, or sophisticated the aphorisms or something like that in the world, um, they're very often ones that you'll find paralleled from other places because people are just trying to figure out how to live. And people will say, in some sense, very similar things, but from very different angles. And so the obstacle is the way. Um is not terribly dissimilar in one sense from this older old notion of abandonment to divine providence. Um, this was kind of a early modern period where there was a spiritual tradition that, that really did speak of genuine abandonment to divine providence. And it had a very similar flavor. I mean, the idea is that thing in your life that looks like an inconvenience is actually what God himself has put there. And he wants you to move right through it. And the goal, of course, is to get the heart rate in us that's always freaking out because we're trying to get back to our equilibrium state uh, uh, to 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 keep to to calm down so that when the waves and, and you get the sense in the New Testament, right? Um, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Rejoice in your suffering. Every New Testament book seems to have some some mm-hmm. statement about rejoicing in suffering or being calm during suffering. The assumption is, of course, that most of us aren't like that. The reason it's repeated all the time is that most of us, when we suffer, uh, don't surf the waves smoothly. Uh, uh, but what God is doing in giving you life, in a sense, is training you. Uh, and in fact, defeating the devil a little bit and defeating suffering itself a little bit by training you to be the kind of soul that's so rested in God that when whatever interruption happens, and it can be radical, interruption in our life can Life can knock. Well, I was about to say, yeah, life can knock you over. That's the PG version. Uh, (laughs) Life can really knock you over. And God is preparing us, I think, in a lot of ways to be the kinds of souls that when we encounter that genuinely receive that providence, uh, uh, genuinely integrated into our lives and move right through it with, with deep stability. You get this sense. There's this wonderful moment in Matthew nine, 10, it's there somewhere. Uh, but, but John the Baptist dies. Um, and Jesus is about to go off and grieve, but then his disciples come with a question and there's all these people come and they need to be fed. It's one of these stories, right? And, and Jesus, who's 
needs to go off and grieve, pauses, this interruption takes place, and he feeds everyone, and he takes care of everybody. And then, in fact, at the very end, he sends his disciples away, and he finishes the job, finishes taking care of the people. And then he goes off to the mountain to grieve while they're off in the boat. And it's very interesting. It's like it, he didn't not do the thing he needed. He didn't get to the he did not get to where he is a human needing to grieve needed to go. But he received this inconvenience in a sense, and he received it fully. Uh, and I think, yeah, so it seems to me that like there's there's probably still something to aphorisms like that, or at least they're pinging. Uh, maybe maybe they can be tweaked or whatever, but they're pinging something about the real world that I don't think we need to be overly antithetical to. Sometimes Christians can hear like, oh, an unbeliever said it. Well, obviously we're supposed to like, you know, take out this word and put in Jesus every time. And it's like, well, there's there's some truth to that sometimes, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 no, for sure. Um, one of the things, like you were talking about this sense of life, this sense that we have sometimes of, hey, how do we make, how do we make it through the day? How do we get out of bed and then do the things that we're supposed to do? Um, and it's hard and, and there's this and there's that. Um, about seven years ago, um, I sat in a coffee shop with a group of 30 other people and it was this kind of spontaneous gathering. My friend James Kelly was leading it and it was basically, okay, we have all these people who are working in tech and they just feel like they are not connected to their faith, even though they're Christian. They they feel like there's a gap between their faith and their day-to-day -day jobs. And I was working in tech at the time. I was also taking courses in seminary. I was I was like, oh no, you can the cultural mandate, it is a good thing to work. But but people were just feeling like, well, am I really using my skills? gifts for God. All I'm asked to do on Sunday is to do PowerPoint. On Monday, it feels like God is absent, um, which which again goes back to this, like, how do we sense things? How do we work through? And, and uh, there's almost like a guilt that I've heard in people, even Joel and I, like before we started this podcast, Joel was going through something of an experience of, you know, oh, I want to do something for God. I've done things if for Toyota, I've done things for whatever, but have I done anything for God? And this this disconnect between our our tech work mm -hmm. in industrial in an industrial age and our divineness, our our sense of the divine. Yeah. And so it seems like you've you've put a put a thesis together that says, well. You know what it feels like in modernity? It feels like there is a separation between the two. And this didn't exist 300, 400 years ago, building on the work of Charles Taylor, a secular age. You, you are, you are saying, okay, it's not just the, the divine absence thing because of a secular age in general, but because of our technological age in particular that is causing this distinction between these two aspects of our Sunday morning, if you will, and, and the rest of the week. So help un, help us learn that that thesis and why you think that thesis, if I've articulated it well, um, yeah. what is that thesis and, and how would you unpack it to make sense of it? Yeah, that's a, and that's it's fascinating relative to several things you're saying. Yeah, the basic, just to hit the thesis part of it, the basic idea of it is that, you know, Taylor and secular age, setting up secular age very briefly is sort of like, um, 
you know, it was almost impossible not to believe in God of some sort. You could maybe be a Christian heretic or something, but it'd be really hard not to believe in God at all, say in the year 1500 AD in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. Then in the year 2000 AD, by the year 2000 or a bit after, um, it's actually pretty normal, even if you're a believer who's an Orthodox believer, who really thinks the things and lives your life by them, to faintly understand in your lizard brain why somebody feels a wobble uh, toward that, that, that naturalist, atheist, materialist direction. And so that's weird. Even those who are in one camp can almost feel faintly that sense of the other. And that's in addition to the fact that there just are others over in that other camp. And so mm -hmm. what's kind of what's kind of changed in the background noise of belief, if you will? And Taylor has a lot of important things to say about that. He develops it very well. And he identifies rightly this this kind of middle of the 19th to end of the 19th century is this moment where you go from having just, you know, a couple of handfuls of materialists out there uh, until the middle of the 19th to late 19th century in France, England, Germany, and America, you get a, 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 a more significant explosion of a population of people who really are unbelievers, which represents a larger explosion of those to whom it's plausible and who don't kind of make the jump, if you will. Right. And so um, what I do in, in my work in large part is to is to supplement that thesis by saying, well, middle to the late 19th century, Taylor does not talk a lot about technology. And so it's the, I guess the question becomes, does he bring the plane in for a landing? But we need to kind of understand the material conditions within which we're forming beliefs in the first place to kind of fully grasp what it is that makes God eradicable from the cosmic picture in, a, in the first place. So that's that's one piece there. And then the thesis, just to summarize the thesis, then um, uh, bracketing that and then summarizing the thesis, we're really now asking what is life like on one side of this revolution and what is life like on the other? And this is a pretty gross simplification, you understand. But maybe for even more practical purposes, you could ask, like, what was life for the average European person like, doesn't even need to be European, like in, you know, the year 1300? And what is life like in the year, say, 2010 for the average uh, uh, person in a developed country? And um, I think you could contrast it in three ways that I think help understand what's going on with God. And I think it also helps understand what's going on with this, this sense of disconnection from labor and meaning and that sort of thing. Um, the three legs would be something like, I think that the experience of the world, or at least generally speaking, the experience of the world for somebody in 1300 AD is an experience of a world that is very insistent upon you, which is to say, I can't conveniently move it out of the way. It's there when a storm comes that you, that like might hurt my crops, that's a big deal. Uh, animals are still a big deal. The, 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 the stubborn qualities of just this soil are something I have to work with and I can't work around. And so you kind of have to imagine a, a relationship to the world where all of those things that actually are still around, but that we have roads and there's so many ways in which we, we kind of silence the agency of the world by putting our own agency on it. I don't have to move around trees when I have roads. And of course that process has always been going on to some extent, but what you have, I think after the industrial revolution is such a, is, is humans that live so inside technological suspension of the forces of the world that the world 
begins to feel a lot more. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping, getting ahead of myself because I'm already doing the contrast, but the world feels a lot less agentic. In the old world, I think the sense of working with the world was like working with agents acting upon you and that you're acting upon. And so you, you, you begin to think, what does, what does the cosmic picture bottom out in, uh, in a world of agents? Well, it bottoms out in an agent. And then you can go then, that's one leg of the stool. Second leg of the stool would be- And that would be, around. just to jump in, that would be like including something like stars. Stars are yep. are there in the older world. And now we we are blinded by the lights of city yep. cities. Yep. We don't even see yep. the stars. So yep. there's there's something in the way, uh, so to speak, of this this huge reality that used to be a navigational system that used to, you couldn't yep. move the stars, but you can move yep. the light bulbs. Yep. And, and you can't not see them. It's like we live under, most of us have never really seen the sky. Like we live under canopies of light that disconnect us. Yeah. From agents. I mean, they would have experienced those very much as they're shining down on me in the way that they shine on me and not the way I wanted them to or make them to. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's just the whole of reality. And the community is like that as well. So what is it like to live in a community of two to 300 people? And you can't just move somewhere else. You don't have a car. Uh, if you go outside of a community, you're very vulnerable. You experience communities and the bodies and the tendencies within them as very stubborn realities, but they're very personal realities. There's, there's a community bottoms out in personhood. And then you add to that your own labor the third leg of the school, the way I plug into the community, I think in a lot of old communities, and this doesn't mean labor would have been fun and great and fulfilling in all these maybe sentimental ways, but, but the idea that like, what do I do? Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I planting food? Mm. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because if I don't, I'm going to die. And that is obvious. And the way that I, my role plays in the group of two to 300 your competencies in a in a society in a small town of two to three hundred, your peculiarities shine out quite significantly, and you wind up plugging into the community a lot of times by virtue of being the jester, by virtue of being the whatever. But you plug into the community, and you see yourself being seen as plugging mm. into the community by virtue of those very those idiosyncrasies. So bracket that, push that, push that to the side. You go over to our world, what are the contrasts? Um, the experience of the world is such that its voice and its agency is kind of silenced over. We're able to do that just to the material conditions of the cosmos in a historically epochally unique way after the Industrial Revolution, and increasingly so since then. Um, my experience of the community alongside of that increasingly becomes something that I can dip into and out of. It's not stubborn. I can move. And even when I move to a new case, I can like, no, you guys right here for an hour, but then I've got the people I'm going to go see after this. And they might be totally disconnected and I'm the manager of it all. And so the community is not this stubborn thing, or at least doesn't have to be as this stubborn thing that I just have to navigate around and therefore loses something of the stubborn agentic quality of persons. But then you add to that our very own active participation, the one way we experience the personhood behind it all and the personality of things. This is why perhaps Mark Zuckerberg is into Genesis 1, right? Is that my <laughs> very own activity, my very own activity and, and plugging into the act of others and seeing them see me plug into that act and vice versa is part of how we experience ourselves as in meaningful act. And what you have with the, the the proliferation of modern labor in a lot of cases uh, is is 
A, big, huge companies where I don't really know what I'm doing. I know like the bit that I, you know, it's, it's Dilbert. You know, this is like, this is um, the old comic Dilbert, right? Uh, you know, the whole comic is about people who like take one chunk of a thing and it's, it's Dilbert, right? That's the comic. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. Yeah. I don't make sure. Uh, uh, but, you know, take one chunk and they pass it on to somebody else. And there's very little sense of like, what, what is my piece of the whole? Very few people have a sense of the whole or even have a sense of how the whole industry I'm a part of relates to the whole of civilization. And so you got that. And so, and, and then, so what winds up happening? I go to work and most of the tasks are given to me. It's like you, mm -hmm. because you're competent in this abstract skill set that you have, do this piece of labor that the hive mind understands why it needs to be done. But we just know that you can do it. And, and so you become, and you get this sensation described in modern labor of kind of being carried along in your own labor. You know, it's almost like you're passive in your own agency. So you, you bracket those two senses of the world together and compare them. What you see on one side is agent, agent, agent. And on the other side is kind of the evaporation of felt agency, you might say. And when you look at the cosmic picture through the mirror, that's really the question. If hmm. we look at what is reality as a whole like through the mirror of my experience of the world, my experience of my community, and my experience of my own action. Well, God just makes sense on the other side of things. It's like, well, duh. All there is is agents. And so what's behind it all but a capital A agent? For us, it's the opposite. All there feels like there is is uh, me, but a passive me who's kind of being carried along in a force that I don't fully understand and a world made after my own image that's made after that force that I don't understand. And that grayness, that thin a uh, 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 ceramic wrap that's placed over all of the textures of reality, as it were, is how we how's, how we begin to experience things. And so, I think in all of these ways, there's that general juxtaposition uh, between what our mind can know. Our mind can really come to know God exists, and then compare it. Why do I nevertheless feel this way? But I think it also helps explain that sense of you know disconnect in a in a tech community. I could imagine. A, you're in an industry where maybe you feel those suspensions turned up to a, to a maximal degree. Um, you might be in an industry where you feel like I'm not exactly sure what my piece of the pie is, but you might especially, uh, and I, uh, and you might be in an industry where that connection to others, to the agencies of others is very suspendable. I would think that the tech industry is also a place where there's a lot of exceptions to this though. That is to say, um, um, my sense is that in the tech industry, you also have maybe uh, uh, a larger degree of people who do understand what they're doing and really feel some degree yeah, of fulfillment in their work. Whereas, like my observations come from like you know working in big bureaucracies and that sort of thing, and I'm sure that still exists in the tech world. Uh, um, but maybe there's still a disconnect um, even in the tech world of like I can personally get into the beauty of coding. Uh, uh, like I can feel dignity and that I'm writing beautiful code. Maybe there could still be a disconnect in the tech world between what I'm doing and how that contributes to the larger social algorithm. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Right. It's like, what is the telos actually of my whole company? And like, I can do a beautiful thing in the company, but what is this whole thing for? I would imagine that can be a, maybe an existential itch that develops. Sorry. That was a lot of words. No, no, no. I liked how you separated it into those three categories. So technology is like the thing that takes away the agency of our lived experience in both 
you know, the, the stars is the one example, but in so many different ways and also the second in our community. But then the very, very way that we do work takes away our sense of agency. And this was why I switched professions. I used to work in project management at the University of Waterloo. I was a cog in a wheel and I mm-hmm. felt like I couldn't solve. I, I remember writing down a mission statement at the time for my life because I was all into productivity. And my mission statement was solving problems for the sake of others. And I just wanted to solve problems, like give me good problems. And I wasn't getting that in the bureaucracy because I didn't have that sense of accomplishment. Entrepreneurship, I get, I looked for a company of less than 10 people. I found a company of less than 10 people. They hired me on. Um, and then from seven people to around 20 people, all of a sudden there was less agency again at around 20 people. I had to, with a developer go outside of what the instructions were from the board and do a side project that we worked on independently for the sake of the company. But we had that agency, but that wouldn't happen when we were at 30 people, you know, like it, as, as you grow, it, it takes that that away because there's there's a board there's finances you gotta you like like even the ceo feels like their hands are tied but i do think that there are those exceptions like you mentioned how are you processing this joel like i i've yeah, kind no, of I think... unpacked this with you before and i find it fascinating because i've experienced it and i think it explains a sense of why god doesn't feel real on monday morning yeah in the same way I that think... sunday does yeah it, it's quite profound. And I have a a couple of things that I'm thinking of one, you know, post industrial revolution, we have really moved into this new period. And looking forward from what I'm seeing, I think it's, it really will just keep accelerating. But maybe if I like double click into that a little bit more, you know, everyone's talking about AI, and we've talked about AI before, but like, you would have in an interesting sense, agents, a lot of what is happening in AI is you're creating agents. And now these agents will be able to do things for you. So now you're not only producing these agents that are opposing you, but you are creating agents that can do more for you. So you're increasing your leverage, um, which will, again, increase, you know, dominion over the world. And how does that affect the mirror that you you look and you see God in? Right. So that's very interesting. One thing, though, because it's all often hard to, let's say, predict the future is that we are seeing with individuals becoming more capable on their own companies let's say in the startup phase will be able to do more with less so actually it's like hey you actually might not need to scale up to 20 30 people because five people can actually do the same amount of work and what that might actually do is create a sense where you don't get this feeling of like okay i don't see the big picture you're like okay i see i'm responsible for these five agents and now i'm seeing all these problems um so it'll be it'll be different um, and I'm trying to kind of like hypothesize what might happen in a world where we're kind of unleashing agents. And, you know, there's also the other angle of there's going to be threat agents as well. So, you know, in the security space, it's like, okay, now there's agents and it might be naive to think that all of these agents are going to be good. So there are going to be like bad agents. And like what we've done a lot in our society is like made it very easy for people to kind of just be flowing as part of the motion, right? You don't have to actually go on your computer and really understand how the packets are being sent. And like, you're just like, oh, I'm going to install an antivirus and it's going to take care of viruses. But like, 
will that continue to be the case? I think, yeah, I think there will be companies who are still solving those problems. So you don't have to do it. Everything gets more abstract and continue to abstractify. So yeah, I, I <laughs> talking you through out loud, I think, yeah, it'll, that trend will still continue. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And, you know, and, and this is the sense in which I, I wouldn't consider myself a pessimist. You know, I, I do think like we're in for some significant challenges and these are super important questions, especially as we start to see the proliferation of AI, uh, uh, all the ethical, moral and philosophical questions that brings up and self-relativization questions. Um, interestingly, the, uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Player Piano, that novel, imagines a world of kind of full automation, at least. It's pre-AI in the imagination, but it kind of works out what would be the existential implications of sort of robots doing everything for you. Uh, and that's a really, I just, for listeners or for you guys, it's a, it's an interesting reflection and I think gets at some fun things. Um, yeah, one thing, when I, when I say not cynical, um, um, one thing, that I think probably is the case is that solutions to these sorts of things, to the humanitarian concerns, to the patterns of labor and that sort of thing are going to come from the tech world as well. It's not just tech world problem, get some ethicists out there to bring in some solutions. I really think um, um, we're, we're in a, we're in a world. I mean, again, I, I'm not a business person or anything like that, but I do try to have some vague sense of cultural trends and we're in a world where a lot of business and education and entrepreneurial ecosystems are in a time of radical shifting. And Silicon Valley, in some sense, has reflected that for a long time. One generation style of business in Silicon Valley is, you know, old, <laughs> you know, within 20 to 30 years. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the way it seems. And, and I think the solution to a lot of these things and dignified labor and feeling that connection and figuring out how to uh, uh, create the, uh, work that syncs with community and with knowing what I'm doing with a sense of purpose um, um, uh, uh, and that's linked to my competencies and that doesn't treat humans as just an instrument in labor, but actually a participant mm -hmm. in labor. So one thing that's a, a very important development that I, I gather you see more in Silicon Valley than you see in a lot of other places is something like the, the, ad, the, the modern proliferation of the co-op model, right, for businesses um, that, you know, <laughs> out in the big, bad metros, you know, that's not the way they do things. But, uh, you know, there's a but it seems like in the future, that's one thing that is perhaps going to become more of a trend. And maybe that will limit some, you know, some of these things. Again, I'm speaking quite a bit out of my lane here, but I'm just thinking of, uh, again, it, it doesn't seem to me to be so inbuilt to like we're in the tech world. It's inevitably all going to go this direction. Rather, I think mm -hmm. Christians in the tech world can be. Well, again, the agents themselves, uh, right. they can be the agents that look at the canvas. I, I think what we tend to do when we look at things like this or we, we go through problems is we tend to um, we tend to draw upon models and movements that are already there and say, well, there's six options here. Well, what's the righteous one? Well, I'll choose that one. And there is something to be said for wiping the chessboard, as it were, because the chessboard is wiped right now in a lot of ways and staring at it and saying what's a way this can be done that nobody's doing and i think that's that, that i think i think a lot of solutions to some of these things will come out of that headspace mm -hmm. yeah i think the other thing that hit me kind of hearing what's being said here is you know uh, andrew mentioned earlier i had this almost 
I wouldn't say crisis, but this feeling of like, okay, how do I, I'm doing great work in, in the tech world and how do I connect that to a sense of like purpose and meaning and starting this podcast was definitely part of that and saying like, okay, now I can see how what I'm doing is actually directly impacting, you know, others. Right. Um, and I think I could still see that as part of a bigger company, but when you can see it more directly at a closer level, um, that, that fills that or scratches that itch or fills that void. So I think, yeah, um, as you mentioned, like Christians in tech can like be those agents can do those things. I do think that is like one way to kind of close this, at least for people in tech to close that issue where now you're actually doing something like, you know, go build something, do something right. It's like, you can still be part of a, a bigger organization and contributing to that, but that doesn't mean you are shut off from getting your hands dirty yourself and, you know, getting your hands dirty allows you to feel the dirt, to feel that and have that connection that you couldn't have when you're kind of um, just separated um, yeah. from the grime. Yeah. 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 No, that's good, Joel. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny, like on a, as per how we defined philosophy at the beginning, we're getting very practical about a way of life. Um, and thinking about like businesses, if you work in a job and you have someone reporting to you, are you giving them agency in their work, you know, or are you treating yeah. them like a machine? Um, that would be a very practical takeaway. Um, I think also about just the, the way in life that people go through and there's a lot of, there's things happening to me. There's, there's these external pressures and there are, but, but, but take some time to, I was at a, someone did a presentation on trauma and counseling. And she said at the very beginning, you know, before, before I begin today, some of the things I might bring up might, might be traumatizing for you, even in this session. And so therefore, if you feel that way, put your hands on your legs and rub them, rub your legs and remind yourself of where you are <laughs> like, and it, and yeah, like Joel, you laugh. And I, I kind of thought it was like a cheesy thing too, but, the, but then I thought about what that is like, yeah. use your sense experience of feeling your legs and your legs, feeling your hands. You are an agent, you know, remind yourself of that. There are things that have happened to you. You might've gone through trauma, remind yeah. yourself of your agency. Um, even in the Lord's prayer, it's, it's not just, praying for God to do a bunch of things, but it's as, as we also forgive others, like even in the, the, the ritual of the Lord's prayer, we remind ourselves of that. And even God looked at his creation, said it is good. I think we ought to, regardless of whether we work in tech or not, look at our creation at our dinner that we prepare for our family and look at it and say, it is good. And, and to take joy in our creativity, our agency, not as a replacement uh, for glorifying God, but as a way to glorify him as being created in his image and living that out. Um, what, what other kind of thinking more practically thinking about living this out? Um, what other thoughts would you have as we kind of wrap this up, Joe? Yeah. The one that's striking me is um, almost to get down to as brass tacks as I can is to recognize um, a lot a lot of people, nevertheless, in the real world, and I'm sure in the tech industry and uh, in a lot of industries, don't don't feel this way. In other words, in some cases, people are trapped in jobs that are not very fulfilling. They have to do them. 
um, or they, they can't realistically get an alternative and that sort of thing. And so one of the things I always w- want to say out loud when I talk to people about this is to say we need to we need to have a category for thinking about what it what does it mean to recover agency in a sense of agency actually when you see all these problems, but you're kind of, you can't do that much about them. In some cases, maybe you can do something about them, but in a lot of cases, it's not that clear. Um, and I've seen cases like that. You know, I've seen people that were, whose skill set slash life slash everything meant that they were going to be in this $40,000 a year job till they died. And it's like very hard to see how they're ever going to get out of that. Yeah. And it's a kind of cog in the wheel job, right? Uh mm-hmm. And it's like, what what do, what do you have to say to that person to stay oriented? And whatever you can say to that person, it's almost like it applies to everybody. And there, I think the New Testament's fascinating because it 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 inherits a world, or, the, or or Paul inherits a context that he has to minister to, that's full of this very um, kind of sad phenomenon of slavery. Um, a lot of the New Testament is written to people who are trapped. Uh, who can't really get out of it, or or you think of First Peter, First Peter two. There's also just this issue of like you can imagine a woman in a marriage that's not a very good marriage, but there's also in that world there's not like this is not a world where you're gonna get out of that very easily. So what do you do? And in each of those cases, uh, in all of those cases, it seems to me that that what we see is Paul giving a kind of agency. Uh, to people in that condition by reframing what their life is. Well, you don't do it for them. You do it as unto the Lord. Um, and you actually frame, even, even when you're uh, the, um, uh, uh, put in a position unjustly and experiencing an, the effects of injustice, you can't do anything about. And that's really kind of the martyr, right? Like it's, you didn't earn it. This just is happening to you. And in modern labor systems, I think there's a lot of injustice. Uh, uh, there are things about the labor system that just shouldn't be this way, but it's how a lot of people wind up having to live. And I think applying that, I think Paul would want to give a sense of you need to think of yourself as not just an employee of this company and maybe not even primarily as an employee of the company or the employee of that boss. You actually need to think of yourself as a Christian such that wherever you are, you actually act very kingly. Uh, uh, you actually need to think of yourself as Adam in the Garden of Eden, and this is your garden, and you and you act, you carry yourself, and you act like a king in that context. And what you hmm. and I don't I don't mean be cocky. That's not the point. But you get the sense that like if you're if you're just a a laborer doing good work because it's good and because I can do a good thing. Uh, Paul is even saying like, hey, who know? You know, there's the, even with the with the the passage with the wife that Peter writes to. There's kind of a who knows. Maybe you'll win your husband without a word. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he's putting in your head. <laughs> he's putting in your head a goal almost like you're acting and affecting the world in some way. And it's just in a sense, it's boiling down what the New Testament is boils down that degree boils down that degree of agency and dominion that actually cannot be stolen from you. There is a mode of having agency that you have even if you're in prison. Uh, and I think like if you can really kind of gets back to that stoic thing, right, that that, that most principial um, self-possession of my act, uh, I think the New Testament is shoving you back there. And then if you're if you're shoved into that, there's almost the sense that wherever you're all wherever you are, you are, you'll do OK. <laughs> you'll have that sense mm-hmm. uh, of, of what it means to to reign well in your own context. And so that's a very general thing, but I think it actually applies very concretely to most people in, in the textures of their lives. 
Yeah. I think it's quite helpful for, yeah, not just people in tech, but everyone to have that perspective. And, you know, if we can encourage more people to, to kind of learn about that, that might help this, you know, dilemma we're seeing where a lot of people feel lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Carry yourself as Kings and Queens. Um, I like that. That's uh, it's, it's more than just a coffee mug slogan. It's there's something deep um, ingrained into who we were meant to be that we need to live into um, as, as new creation. It's, it's uh, interesting to contrast that with like some of the tech determinist or, or, you know, how does that fit with acceleration? Joel and I have been chatting about that. <laughs> that's another philosophy. Uh, that's, yeah. that's another philosophy. This, this oh, yeah. acceleration at all costs, but we don't have time. Uh, so we'll have to save that for another day. Um, <laughs> oh, I'd be happy been, to come back. So uh, that yeah. would be fun. That would be Definitely. fun. Oh man. This has been a fascinating conversation. I, like I said, I've found uh, the book, um, you know, Bulwarks of Unbelief, just to really tickle my brain in awkward ways. <laughs> um, I'm just like going through my day. I'm like, huh, that tree, that tree is there, but I, I know that the city could move it at any point. It doesn't like to what degree is that yeah. tree an agent uh, pressing yeah. into my reality, you know, yeah. and, and everything takes on this meaning that I think we ought to see the world as meaningful um, in so many ways. So anyways, thank you so much, Joe. Uh, thanks for letting me call you, Joel. Do- Dr. Minnick, I'll, I'll maybe tomorrow in class, I'll call you Dr. Minnick, who knows. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Oh, and do you want to share with people, have you started your your weekly public lectures with Christian Christianity or as a way of life, that sort of thing? Oh, that, um, that actually, because of some... Um, um, uh, organizational reshuffling those actually got postponed because of a, a a sudden grant thing that I wound up having to be a part of uh okay. and so actually a, a grant on technology and uh its relationship to pedagogy and churches uh and so <laughs> I inherited a, a much bigger piece of uh doing that labor and so they had to postpone the lectures for a bit but probably that'll come out um, we'll probably wind up doing those next spring Okay. And people can learn about the Davin Institute to check it out there. You can take courses online like I am. Um, and they're just, they schedule, it's like, uh, you know, 20 people sign up for the course and then 20 people input their availability on a certain day and you see what works for people. And then all of a sudden you're, you're meeting with others, uh, weekly and, and reading some, some good books. And so, uh, I've been enjoying that. And I just wanted to let people know about that good institution, um, that is kind of getting you to get more classical in some ways, getting back to the Bible, getting back to ancient ways of thinking like the early church might've done. Um, so thanks Joe for joining us today. Thank you listeners for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we do appreciate you joining, uh, the Patreon team and even supporting us even at a buck a month. There's been a couple of you that have jumped onto that. That's cool. Thanks. And uh, take care. Use tech. Find rest. Glorify God. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. See you.